Well, let's look today now uh, at Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 5. We are in verses, wow, how do I not know? I really did study this, 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16, I was going to say 12 and I knew that wasn't right. My little secret to understanding how to live the Christian life in the world, and I'm paraphrasing several biblical texts when I say this, is to embrace our weirdness or accept the awkwardness. The Apostle Paul says in Titus 2.14, and I think it's rendered best actually in the King James Version, that Jesus has purified for himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. And, and there's no getting around that fact as Christians that we are a peculiar people. Jesus makes us peculiar. We don't necessarily start out peculiar, but if you weren't peculiar to begin with, Jesus will make you peculiar. And last week we looked into Jesus' introduction to his Sermon on the Mount and we unpacked those eight surprising statements that Jesus made about citizens of his kingdom in what is known as the Beatitudes. And... It was a little lighter crowd than normal last week, similar to this one. So if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And he said that he blessed the people or the citizens that are favored by God in his kingdom are the poor in spirit. They mourn their sin. They hunger and are satisfied by righteousness. They're meek. They're peacemakers. They're merciful and they're persecuted. And so Jesus says, this is how you're going to be identified. This is how you're going to be set apart. You will be different than the world. And you'll be so different from the world, the world will notice, you will be peculiar, and they will persecute you. So as his disciples are sitting there listening to Jesus, and as we sit here and listen to Jesus, we realize that Paul is really picking up on an aspect of what Jesus is saying. We're going to be different. You can can listen to how Christians speak. You can see the way Christians walk and dress and talk and act. And if someone opened up your spiritual passport, so to speak, uh, they would see and, and they would not be surprised to learn that you're a citizen of a kingdom that is very foreign to the world because you don't behave like other people in the world. You, you must belong to a foreign kingdom. We're strangers in a strange land. We're aliens. We're a peculiar people. And, and Jesus concludes his description of kingdom people by saying, you will be persecuted for it. So Jesus basically says here at this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that as my citizens, as my kingdom people, you stand out and you'll be bullied. You'll get picked on. Now here's the thing. If you get told that you are different than the world and that the world is going to persecute you, this is what the disciples are hearing, this is what we're hearing as Jesus teaches, your natural response is probably very similar to mine. You decide one of two things. I am going to withdraw from the world... Or, I am going to blend into the world. If I can pull off either withdrawing or blending in, then maybe I can avoid this persecution, which Jesus says surely is coming my way for being weird. And we see various Christians and branches of Christianity that have followed either of these options. Some Christians say very unapologetically, if the world hates us, if the world finds us useless, then we will just withdraw. We're going to set up our own communities. We're going to have our own gardens and farms and food and shopkeepers and just keep to ourselves separate from the world, and we will let the world go its own way. We think it's going to hell in a handbasket. We'll just let them go their way, and we'll go our way. And sometimes that withdrawal from the world takes the form of something like monasteries and a monkish life, right? The, The monks just took themselves out of the world. 
Sometimes that withdrawal from the world takes the form of gated suburban communities in Florida with a big church in the middle and with a private recreation club and a condominium board and very clear branding and promotion that says this place is for Christians. If you move in here, you will be uncomfortable. And so you end up with these enclaves of evangelical Christianity where it's just safe to be because we don't have to worry about the world. It stays outside the gates. But there are Christians who've never set foot in a monastery, nor live in a Christian bubble of suburbia, who still take the position of and manage to pull off the practice of disengaging from the world. They simply go through their daily routine, week after week, month after month, year after year, disengaged from the world, never engaging with non-Christians. They don't make non-Christian friends. They avoid non-Christian clubs and gatherings. They certainly never participate with non-Christians in a way that would be identifiably Christian. They just disengage and they have no impact on the non-Christian world. And if Jesus tells you, as my disciple, you're going to be persecuted, this is one of the options that's appealing. I'm just going to back away from a world that hates me. And then there are groups of Christians, both churches and individuals, who go the other way. They pick the second option. They want to fit into the world. And so they engage pretty well with the world by acting exactly the same as the world. What direction is the culture blowing these days? And they ask themselves that, and after a cursory glance over Scripture without looking too closely and some deliberately lightweight and shallow study, they conclude to their satisfaction that it is perfectly fine for Christians to affirm the exact same things that the world affirms. And so they don't have to look any different. We don't have to be weird. I mean, why do we have to be so dogmatic? I mean, we not being too extreme when we draw a line in the sand here. Did Jesus really mean that? Or would God, who loves us, really say those things? It's incredibly convenient to be a progressive Christian in a progressive culture. It means you don't have to be peculiar. There's no need to embrace the weirdness. It eliminates the awkwardness. But it also means you have absolutely nothing to offer the world that they don't already have. You're just them. So as we consider, and this is what the text today is about, is our proper relationship to the world and what it's supposed to be, we find that we have this double-edged temptation of either isolation on one hand or compromise on the other. But Jesus is right there waiting for us in that temptation. Even as his disciples might be starting to let their minds wander in these directions during his Sermon on the Mount, or even as our philosophy of church and ministry might be beginning to drift, Jesus moves from the inevitability of persecution in the world because you are peculiar to make two definitive statements that his people cannot withdraw from, nor can they blend into the world. They cannot isolate or compromise. And he teaches this in such a way that instructs us in the nature of that distinctiveness. In other words, he doesn't just say, you need to stick it out in the world so that people bully you and beat you up, you know, because you need to have some sort of martyr complex. No, he says there's a reason you will be distinct. There is a purpose in your peculiarity. And here is what he says right after he says, you're going to be weird and the world's going to persecute you. And the disciples start to think, well, I'm going to withdraw or I'm going to blend in, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus is not going to give the disciples or us the chance to hide or withdraw. Let's just pray as we consider these words. Father God, I just pray that you would make these very familiar words fresh to us again. These words are so familiar, salt and light. You could probably quote these pretty much verbatim without a lot of help. We know these words so well. So I just pray that they would land on us fresh again this morning, that we would see why your son would teach these things to his disciples in such a penetrating way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus tells the disciples that the world's going to consider them disposable. The world is going to oppose you. You will be tempted to isolate or compromise. And Jesus says, don't do that. And he says it two different ways. He says, you are going to be distinct from the world, and it is for the sake of the world. First of all, he says, you are salt, and there's a purpose to your saltiness. Now, I don't do this 95% of the time, because normally when you're reading the Greek, it translates quite accurately and well to the English. But in this case, if you will bear with me, we're actually going to look at a little bit of Greek here, okay? Because when he says that you are the salt of the earth, there is something going on in the way that Jesus phrases this that should be an indicator that he means something more than just salt and saltiness. Because he says that you are the salt, which is halas, which is very literally the word for salt. But As I say that, just keep in the back of your mind for a moment that it is also a word commonly used in Greek occasionally to mean prudent or wise. Sort of like in English, when we say somebody is sharp, we understand that to mean that they are also intelligent or clever or something like that. And so when you say salt, it can mean prudence or wisdom. Then he says, you're the salt of the earth, which is literally the ground or the land. And we'll get to that. But if the salt has lost its taste, now that phrase has lost its taste is only translated that way contextually because Jesus seems to be talking about salt. But let me tell you, the phrase has lost its taste is actually moreno. And it's one word and it means has become foolish or to become foolish. And that's why I say we need to stop and think about why is Jesus choosing these words? Because there's a perfectly good Greek word that you could use for lacking taste, heristema goemai. But Jesus doesn't use those words. Instead, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become foolish, okay, that's weird. So maybe he is talking about wisdom and prudence and not exactly salt. But then he keeps going. He says, If the salt becomes foolish, how shall its saltiness be restored? Which means seasoned again. And it's straightforward. He says then it's no longer good for anything. And then again, Jesus makes an interesting word choice here because there's great Greek words for beneficial good. It's agathon. But Jesus doesn't say agathon. Agathon means it's a good thing. It's a beneficial thing. And so he could say that it's not agathon. But he doesn't use it. He says eskuo. Eskuo actually means having prevailing strength or prevailing greatly. Eskio is actually a stronger Greek word than dunamis, which, you know, you've all heard the explanation of where the Greek word dunamis comes from and how we get the word dynamite and how it means power. But eskio means even stronger in the Greek language than that. And so it's interesting that Jesus talking about salt makes two very interesting word choices here in how he decides to say it and that Matthew captures these 
And so if, if I was to just try and pick up on the clues of these word choices that Jesus makes and kind of Paul paraphrase what he's saying to his disciples here, then you could read it like this. You are the prudence or wisdom of the world. But if the wisdom becomes foolish, how can it be made useful again? It is no longer strong to prevail against anything or anyone. It has no effect. It might as well be thrown out and walked over. That's kind of what the connotation of what Jesus is saying while he's making a metaphor about salt which is sprinkled on the land. And we will talk about that. So using this metaphor of salt, Jesus crafts this most amazing lesson for his followers. You're salt, you are distinctive, you are different, you are nothing like the soil that you're being put on. There's a big difference between salt and soil, and nobody is making any mistake about that. But you are meant to be in contact with that soil, not isolated from it, the world. And that distinctive contact that you have with the world, you are not meant to blend in or to lose your distinctiveness. You are not to become unsalty, because if you do, what good are you to the world? Which means that our distinctiveness, our peculiarity is not for our benefit, but for the world's benefit. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've made you different, not for something to benefit you. I've made you different to benefit the world that's persecuting you. You're supposed to be preserving them. Well, let's ask that question. What is the benefit? And commonly, the interpretation here is as a preservative, like salted meat. And it's true that in ancient times, salt was used that way very often. But in fact, that doesn't fit exactly with what Jesus is saying here. He said the salt of the ground. And when this teaching comes up again in Luke, it seems that the message is even more plain. Luke 14, 34 to 35, Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And so Jesus is definitely talking about, there's no getting around it. Jesus is talking about taking salt and putting it in the soil, salting the soil, which is interesting. So We also have to know, and archaeology has proven, that natural salts, gypsum salts, potassium salts, and various mineral deposits were used for thousands of years as fertilizer and as a kind of herbicide. So when applied properly, salt will kill surface weeds while allowing more deeply rooted plants to thrive. And when rain allows the salt to go into the soil, the right amount of salt chemically frees vital minerals and nutrients in the soil, allowing them to nourish plants. And this is actually a practice that's still in use today. There's actually a recent study. I looked it up. It's true. Google it if you want. A recent study of coconut farmers in the Philippines who have a 25% increase in their crop if the proper application of salt is made to their fields. Okay, so, so salt is a fertilizer when used correctly, not overdone, and it is also a herbicide. So it doesn't change the meaning of the text much to call salt a preservative, because that's essentially what it's doing. It's preserving the soil in terms of being a herbicide, but it's more than just a preservative. It's also a cultivator. It's a nurturer of the soil. So it's not wrong to just think of this text in terms of like we think of table salt or salted meat in a modern sense, but it's maybe not exactly in the sense that Jesus intended it or that his listeners would hear it. Uh, Jesus is speaking here and his disciples are listening in a, in a distinctly more agricultural reference, but, but actually the result is still the same. 
Applied with care and with wisdom in small doses, salt preserves crops from weeds and it stimulates growth in hard and barren soil. And because it's salt Jesus is talking about, clearly we are meant to have a preserving influence against the inherent nature of the world, which is to tend towards decay or to tend towards being weedy, hard soil. So Jesus, like he often does in his parables and his metaphors, is creating a contrast. You are the salt, that is the earth. Salt and earth will never be mixed up. You're weird, you're peculiar, you're nothing like what you are sprinkled on. And there's a difference. That earth is going to tend towards weediness. It's going to tend towards infertility. It's going to tend towards fruitlessness. But if you sprinkle yourself into the world, I intend for you in your distinctness to not only preserve the world, but also to cultivate it and see it more fruitful in some way. Now, we can never compromise the wisdom of God for the foolishness of the world or we will have nothing to offer. That's what else he's saying here. He's saying, if the salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? So if the wise becomes foolish, if the church, if the Christian becomes foolish, you have nothing to offer. Now that kind of teaching, just in literally one sentence, has got to land on you. Right? Imagine a whole sermon like this from Jesus. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 28 to 29 says that as the crowds were listening, it says when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. No kidding, right? Like no kidding. Jesus is unpacking stuff here for his disciples in a couple of sentences that should land on them and on all of us with such a weight. He's saying... You're not going to withdraw from a world that persecutes you, and you're not going to blend into a world that persecutes you. You are going to be like salt. You're going to protect it. You're going to be fruitful for it. It's going to be, you are going to be there for the benefit of the world. So Jesus heads off the disciples, and he heads us off at the pass. And he says, you people, my people, you look very different from the world. You're going to be persecuted. But if you even start to think about isolating yourself or withdrawing, let me tell you, you are going to be like salt. The nature of the world is one of decay and decomposition and they're going to tell you that you're useless to them and I am telling you that you are critically useful to the world in preserving it. If the salt you bring is wisdom and you don't conform to their foolishness. So how does this happen practically? Well, we can think about that. We have have Christian businessmen and Christian businesswomen here at Lakeside. Every time you do business in an upright and above-the-table way with a community that may prefer to do things a little bit off the books and a little bit under the table, you are a preserving influence in society. There's a little less decay and a few less weeds where you are at work as a Christian in business. We have Christian students that go to our schools here, and every time those Christian students choose to accept and to love the shy or the underprivileged kid because they are image bearers of God and worthy of dignity, rather than to mock them or bully them the way others are, those students are a preserving influence, and they are cultivating the possibility for healthier growth. In that moment, in that time, in that life, they are being salt. In your own families, every time you show grace and humility in the face of relational strife, rather than arm yourself up and choose sides and join in the battle, but instead you bring kindness and patience in your speech and your actions, you are a preserving influence and you create opportunity for healthier growth in your families. 
A thousand times a day, a thousand different ways, Christ followers who choose the wisdom of God for their words and their actions are a slow, steady, preserving influence on the natural state of a culture that by its nature will tend towards decomposition and barrenness. And so Jesus says in this way, in many small, very common ways. The thing about salt is it is dead common. Salt is everywhere, right? There's nothing really amazing about salt. It's the most common thing. And Jesus says, in all your commonness, in all your simplicity, you are bringing preservation and you are cultivating growth if you bring the wisdom of God to your everyday life. And where that influence withdraws itself from or where that, influ- where that influence compromises itself and becomes indistinguishable from the world, then the decay accelerates and the weeds thrive. Now, there's an implicit warning or teaching that comes along arm in arm with what Jesus says here about how Christians are meant to be a part of the world as a wise and preserving salt, not as foolish compromised dirt. The implicit teaching is the stance that Christians then must have in how they are distinctive as salt. Because just as Christians have made a mistake by not being salt at all and withdrawing or isolating themselves or by compromising, Christians have often also got it wrong in the way in which we have chosen to be distinct or uncompromising. There's no question in this teaching that Jesus intends for us to see that we are to be distinctive for the benefit of the world, not to abuse the world. And that our presence is meant to save the world, not condemn it. In our lack of compromise and in our desire to be distinctive, we must never overreact in a way that ends up being contrary to the task that Jesus has set before us. Do you see what I'm saying? The main teaching here, Jesus says, if you are salt, is that you are a benefit to the world. So I want you to be distinct and I don't want you to compromise, but in your being distinct and in your uncompromising, don't turn this around and end up abusing the world. And that's the error that some so-called Christians make in being distinct from the world by hating the world rather than preserving it. There are people, so-called, again, I'll say Christians, because I don't know, that relish the idea of it all burning. If you listen to them talk and you read the placards that they carry on the street, they don't really care that sinners will suffer. They almost gloat in it. Their reaction to the culture is one of retaliation. They come across as angry and that they, are, that they are persecuted rather than expecting it and embracing it as a blessing. And you can read their Facebook posts and you can see the things that they say in their blogs and you realize that these people don't want to help the world. They want to see the world punished for what it is. In Jesus' day, they were called the zealots. They hated the fact that pagan robe was flooding their land and bringing all their false idols and all their pagan worship. And so the zealots, they killed as many Romans as they could find and get away with. And there are Christians today who are hopefully not wanting to kill pagans, but who hate them. In the U.S., they just call them Democrats. And if you don't want to read what they say about them on Facebook, because it's nasty what they say about them on Facebook, In Canada, they call them liberals or progressives, and thankfully, they're not intent on doing them harm. But if you listen to the talk shows and reading the blogs, it sounds like there are Christians out there that have a great deal of pent-up hostility towards them, and they seem to be forgetting that Jesus has put us here on earth for their benefit. We are not here to hate the world. Hate the sin, but not the world. Jesus finishes the sentence by saying, if you supposedly salty people are not acting as a benefit to the world around you, you are worthless. I don't need 
fertilizer that doesn't nurture growth. I don't need a herbicide that doesn't preserve the soil. You are not working to my ends of preserving the world, then you might as well be thrown out. Jesus did not call his disciples to go to war with people of the world. He calls us out to be a preserving and nurturing influence on the culture around us, even while we are the minority. So Jesus answers our temptation to compromise with the world over with the overreaction of antagonism towards the world by saying that we have to be salt and light. We must be distinct from the world, but notice we are distinct for the sake of the world. We are distinct for their benefit, not ours. So by Christians staying faithful to the wisdom of God, the world gains some preservation, some cultivation, and the world also gains the hope of salvation. Now where does salvation come in? Well, let's go to the second metaphor that Jesus uses, and this one's shorter, okay? Rest easy. It's been a few minutes, so let's just restate it. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, thankfully, probably for you, Jesus uses very straightforward Greek words here. Light means light, city just means city, a hill is a hill, a basket is a basket, a lampstand is a lampstand, and a house is a house, okay? So Jesus uses all these Greek words exactly as you would expect him to use the Greek words, okay? He doesn't have any funny wordplay like he did in the first one, so we can set that aside. This is straightforward, Greek to English, it makes perfect sense. But just because the meaning is plain, it doesn't mean there isn't a profound lesson here. Jesus isn't letting up on his lesson that his kingdom and his followers are distinctive from the world. They cannot hide themselves away from the world and they cannot blend into the world. If salt was not clear enough a picture, Jesus paints another one for his disciples. He says, you are light in darkness. Go ahead and try to hide. Go ahead and try to blend in. You're not going to be able to. It's not going to happen. We used to play a game as kids, and I'm actually interested. We called it Green Ghost. Anybody else here play Green Ghost? That was just our family thing. Okay. (laughs) We called it Green Ghost. I don't have no idea why we called it that. I'm curious. But Green Ghost is simple. It's hide and seek in the pitch dark, right? And we would play in our basement at night. You block the windows, you shut the doors, you turn out the lights, and then you hide. And we would try to find each other in the pitch dark. And the students here at Lakeside, I think, play a similar game here, and they love it. I think they call it preacher and police or Christians and communists or something like that. And then... And the idea is, is that there's a preacher in his congregation trying to escape from a communist country at night, and the police are after him, and they're trying to capture the, the, the pastor, and the congregation is trying to escape or free the pastor if he got caught. Anyway, they love it. They play it for hours. And uh, so they black out all the, you know, they shut all the lights off, and they, it's played in the pitch black. And um, anyway, and they play what, what we called Green Ghost, but what they call Christian and Communist, I think. Um, but... So if you come into church sometime and there's a coat rack knocked over or, you know, something's off the wall, that's probably why. 25 teenagers have been stumbling around in the dark for two hours. But youth ministry isn't really working at peak effectiveness if something doesn't get broken every couple months. So we're okay with that. But anyway, if you want to lose a game of hide-and-seek in the dark, I'll tell you the fastest way to lose. Wear a headlamp, Right? Like, you're not going to win that game. Light does not blend into darkness, and light cannot compromise with darkness. Light can't say, well, I'll just be a little bit dark, and maybe they won't see that I'm light. 
Jesus doesn't provide that option. He says, your being light has a purpose, not just to be different, but to provide a signal, to provide a sign, to provide a beacon towards safety and salvation. If salt is preserving a culture in decay, probably even against its own will, then Jesus' example of light is providing a beacon to the world for those who want to find their way out of that decay and darkness. And the church, or God's people, are to be both. They are to be preserving a world that is in a state of decay, but they are also to be a light to those who are in the darkness who want to get out. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Set yourselves as a city on a hill, and people will see you from horizon to horizon. When Jesus says light of the world here, the world... I'll give you one Greek word, okay? The, the, the word that he uses for world is cosmos, spelled with K in the Greek, but transliterates almost exactly to English. He says, you are the light of the cosmos, the creation of the universe, everything that you see, you are the light of that creation, and so you won't be hidden. You are the light of everything. And there's a sense in this image of a city here of refuge, He uses the word for a walled city. It's a safe place. It's a place where people see at night in the darkness when they're out in dangerous roads traveling. They don't have GPS. They don't have CAA. They don't have a jacked up 4x4 with lead bush light bars, right? Jesus is calling to mind his disciples the notion of a dark night and dangerous roads. And then you see a walled city with light shining out of the windows of the buildings there. It's a place of safety and hospitality that beckons people who are in the darkness. Or then he makes it more personal. He says, nor do people put a lamp under a basket, but they put it on a stand. He drills down more personally. He says, you don't take the trouble to light a lamp in your own household and then hide it. You set it up high so that it lights up the whole room so that the people in the house can see by it. Jesus is saying, do you think that God called you out of darkness and made you into a lamp so that he could hide you? No. God is setting you up on a stand so that everyone around you can benefit from your light. And again, the subtext of the teaching here is clear. What our stance towards the world should be or what our stance should be towards the darkness. We are to use our distinctiveness, our wisdom, our light, our presence to draw people into the safety of of the knowledge of God. Jesus does not intend us to interpret our distinctiveness as an excuse to be used as an assault on or an attack on people who happen to be in darkness. We are the light of safety and hospitality. We are not bludgeoning them with a lampstand. We are not Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. That was intentional. Right? Jesus spells it out for us. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light is our good works. Not Facebook rants about political parties or personalities, right? That, that's not what we're supposed to let shine in the world. His good works is what we're supposed to let shine in the world. We're not supposed to be distinct by saying how angry we are about some new law that was passed. We're supposed to shine in the world by being a place of hospitality and safety and good works. That's how we are to bring enlightenment to the world. Our light is not scolding or berating people because they are in the dark. Our light is to draw them out of the dark. Our light is 
the kind and beneficial actions we take to show the world that there's a place of safety, there's a place of hope, there's a city of refuge that they can run into and be safe. There is good news. And if they are drawn to that good news, they will not give us glory, but they will find the Father and give him glory. So Jesus spells it out two ways. Our distinctiveness is for the sake of the world. First, to preserve it from decay and to cultivate and nourish it and then to offer salvation to those that would come. So where does that leave us after we heard that we were going to be persecuted and thought we could either isolate ourselves or blend in? Jesus gives his disciples neither of those options. You're going to be salt and light. You will never be able to withdraw. You will never be able to blend in. Every generation of Christians and the churches that they form have to ask themselves, what does Jesus intend our relationship towards the world and our culture to be? What stance is Jesus expecting us as Christians who are strangers in a strange land, who are aliens, who are foreigners, who are different than the rest of the world? How are we supposed to live here? What's our stance to be? This is it, salt and light. By being the kind of people Jesus describes in verses 1 to 12, the Beatitudes, Jesus intends for us to engage in the world in the verses 13 to 16. Don't hate the world. Be present in the world for its preservation. Do not conform to the world and thus become foolish and useless, compromised on every important distinctive. Rather, hold fast to the wisdom of God and let the wisdom work in those around you. Do not hide from the world. Shine in your communities as a place of refuge and safety for people to run to and be saved. This is an admonishment. This is a command. But this is also an encouragement because the world says you are useless. The world says we want to be rid of you. The world will even help you along the way of being rid of you, he says. But Jesus says, no, you are not useless. You are salt and light. You are preservation and salvation. You are not who the world thinks you are. You are who I say you are. So now go and be who I have made you. And as your pastor, I'm encouraged because Lakeside is not a church that compromises what Scripture teaches. We do not tolerate hatred or judgmentalism. We do not try to hide from our community, but we engage it as often as we can and as many fronts as we can. And we try hard to shine as a place of safety for people to see that we are different and that we are distinctive and to find shelter in our distinctiveness here. And Lord willing, that will never change. In fact, it will only increase as we conform ourselves into the likeness of Christ and press on in obedience in this kind of teaching. There's lots of personal application for us here too, for your own individual lives. I touched on just a little bit of it. But you will find more application in your life groups. As you go from this morning and you go out into your life groups and you go and meet in each other's homes and talk to each other this week, you will find work there to work this teaching out personally. But at the end of the day, Jesus just says this. You might as well just embrace your weirdness. You might as well just accept the awkwardness. I have made you so distinct, you are not going to be able to withdraw. You will not be able to conform. You are going to be salt and light in the world. And by that, you will preserve it, nurture it, and offer salvation to it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Again, these are familiar words. We've read these verses so many times. And we could quote them almost by heart. And Lord, we need to really grasp what it means to be different, to be distinctive, to be salt and light, to be uncompromised and to be faithful, and to be kind, to be generous, to love those who are in the darkness, and to try to rescue those who need your light.
Father, it's amazing that you didn't even just say that we carry the light. (laughs) You said you are the light. Wow. Yeah. Father, forgive us when we try to hide. Forgive us when we try to compromise, when we try to blend in and just say, yeah, it's okay, we're not that different. You don't have to hate us. We will be hated, but that's okay. We're not here to make friends in this life. We're here to make friends for the next life. Pray that we can do that as a church. In Christ's name, amen.